0: chapter 3, this morning we are reading verses 14 through 21. The word of our Lord from the epistle says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory, in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, in Your mercy, receive the prayers of Your people who call upon You. Grant that we may know and understand what things we ought to do And grant also that we may have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Paul doesn't say it by... the particular term in this passage, but Paul has a lot to say about the mind. In his letters, he invites us to share what he calls the mind of Christ. And the mind, we typically associate with strictly our thought life. But in Paul's theological understanding, the mind is actually one's way of thinking. It's, how, it's not just what we think, it's how we think. It's how we understand, it's how we understand ourselves, it's how we understand the world. It is a disposition or an attitude. It is kind of like the angle of our approach. Dr. Oswald spoke of the heart in the Old Testament, which is very similar to Paul's understanding of the mind in the New Testament. He spoke of it as the control center of our lives. And so when Paul invites us to take on the mind of Christ, he doesn't invite us just to think of things like Christ does, but to actually approach life the way Christ does. To have the governing attitude of life toward others, toward God, toward ourselves that Christ has. To begin to think like Jesus thinks. Not just to think His thoughts, but to think like He thinks. To understand the world as he understands it. Paul here, again, does not mention that term mind per se, but he is inviting us to think with him as he offers up this prayer to the Ephesian believers. He's inviting us to think a bit differently than you and I perhaps are prone to thinking, because I think we are far too often far too small-minded. We think in small terms. We think of ourselves with our limitations. We think of our circumstances with their impossibilities. We think of God's grace as merely a band-aid to cover our sins. We think far, far too small-minded, far, far too often. And we're invited to think differently, to understand ourselves differently, to understand God differently, to understand the world that He has created differently than you and I in our culture are prone to think. Our relationships in life are really the way that our lives are shaped and developed. The most immediate relationship we have is that with our mother. And the relationship that we have with our mother greatly shapes us and greatly develops us into the life that we are becoming. Now that's the immediate one. She gave birth to us. But the relationship that we find in the context of a family is fundamental in the shaping of a child and in the development of the life of a child. And as we continue to grow, these relationships and their influence upon our lives do not become minimal. They become even perhaps more profound because we begin to meet new people, begin to surround ourselves with others. Sadly, Sometimes we divorce ourselves from others, we push others out, we close ourselves off and we live in somewhat of a vacuum and we can damage ourselves in doing that. But the relationships that we have in life, those people that surround us, those friendships we have and family bonds that we have, those that we invest ourselves in and those who graciously invest in us, they shape us and they develop us into the people that we are becoming. In a theological sense, we can understand ourselves in certain relational terms. We understand ourselves in our relationship to God, we understand ourselves in our relationship to the world, and we understand ourselves in our relationship to ourself. These relationships, God, the world, and ourselves are inextricably linked they are tangled. Together So much so that as David read, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commands? He didn't say, well, don't murder. I mean, that's a pretty significant command. Right? Because that's, that's a definite and final sin. Someone who was once living is now dead. He didn't say don't lie. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. But He didn't stop there. He couldn't stop there. He said the second is like unto it. It's, it, it, it falls within that same category. The second... Runs right alongside it. It's like the the second spin of that double helix. You can't separate the two. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then he said, on these two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. Want to fulfill the law? Want to live in the hope of the prophets? Love God with every ounce of your being and love your neighbor just as you love yourself. Now notice notice if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, what is assumed is a proper understanding of the love that we have for ourselves. We care for ourselves. We're to be interested in, in who we are and how we're developing. But the same care that we show to ourselves we're to show to others, Jesus tells us that this relationship we have with God with others with ourselves they are they are bound together, they are enmeshed, they are tangled, they are linked, as I said, far, far too often we find ourselves far far too small minded Paul opens this passage as a prayer. He's writing a letter to these believers that he has invested so much in. And he says that he bows his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice who he says this Father is. He is is the one from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He is the one that hung the moon he is the one that hung the stars he is the one that has given life to everything that lives he is the one that has given breath to everything that breathes he is the one that has placed the name upon all things that are named he is the one from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named we've been talking for the last several weeks about being brought into the family of God through the spirit of adoption That God has brought us in, that He has adopted us as His sons and daughters, that He has said, Come and be a part of my family. Come and live. Come and feast. Come and find rest. Paul says that He bows His knees to the one who says, Come, to the one who has given the name to the family. Paul's prayer is motivated by the relationship that he has with God and the relationship that he has with these Ephesians. And he focuses this prayer challenging our understanding, challenging the Ephesians' understanding of themselves, of ourselves, and our relationship and their relationship to the world and to God there's an underlying focus in his prayer. And that underlying focus is is betrayed, so to speak, by how he begins. He says, for this reason. Well, what reason? What reason is he praying? This is what underlies his prayer. And, and you could say it's an unveiled mystery. And that unveiled mystery he calls something that was hidden, something that was hidden in Christ or in God who created all things through Christ. And he says that that mystery that has been revealed or unveiled to us is the mystery of the gospel, that God loves the whole world, that God intends to bring even the Gentiles into His family that God's love for the whole world is unsearchable. It is not contained within just the Hebrew people, but God desires all the world to be saved, for all of the world to be brought into this family. And that mystery has been unveiled in Christ. It has been disclosed to the Hebrew people wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been looking not just for our own national Redeemer, we have been looking for the Redeemer of the whole world. So much so that at Epiphany, even Magi from the East would come bearing gifts to this One who was born for the whole world. So much so that even as Christ... Taught and healed that there would be Greeks who had come to see Him and to meet Him. Christ has come to redeem the world. Paul understands himself in relationship to this unveiled mystery as a minister of the Gospel. He is a minister of the Gospel to the world and he understands himself Humbly, and he understands himself sufferingly. He says that he is completely unworthy. He says, I am less than the least of all the saints, but God has made me a minister of his gospel. God has chosen me, just his humble and lowly and undeserving servant, to bear witness to the mystery that has been revealed to point the world to this mystery that has been unveiled in Christ Jesus. That He desires all the world to be saved. But not only is He just a humble servant, an unworthy minister, He is a suffering minister. In verse 13 He says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul is one who knows suffering. Paul is one who knows rejection. He is one who knows loneliness. He is one who knows being despised by the world. He says this not to have a pity party and not to invite us to one certainly. But he understands that in his suffering, that in his unworthiness, Christ is glorified. The mystery of all ages is unveiled. And that God's love is shared with the world through the call of the gospel. So that is what his underlying focus, that is... Kind of the why he prays. That is his motivating factor. He prays because of the unveiled mystery. He prays for these Ephesian believers. He prays for you and me. He wants our our minds to be shocked by the glory of the gospel, He wants our eyes to be opened to the transforming nature of the gospel because this mystery has been revealed. What he prays, the obvious focus of his prayer, is telling for us. He prays for us to have unthinkable resources, to have what is incomprehensible. He challenges not just our understanding of the world and God's great love for it, but he challenges also our understanding of ourselves. He says, he prays that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now that's big. That's big theology. That is inexhaustible strength. That is the strength of one who can raise the dead. See, I'm convinced that you and I, I'm convinced certainly of myself. You may have a bone to pick with me talking so badly about you, but I can tell you from my own experience that I far, far too often and far, far too small-minded I look at myself. I look at my limitations. I look at my circumstances. I look at the impossibilities. I look at at what what I can't do. And I forget about the reserves that I have in Christ Jesus through His Spirit. Because the resources that are available to us are unthinkable. Amen. Amen. Praise God. They are unsearchable. We have circumstances that are difficult. And we have abilities that are limited. But we have a God who is infinite. And Paul says that he prays that we would be strengthened with might through His Spirit. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. This is the strength of the one from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is the one about which He can end with that great doxology in verses 20 and 21. To Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus This is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same Christ who rose again from the dead. Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. This is the God who ought to blow our minds. I love that C.S. Lewis said, if you can fit God into your head, if you can understand Him completely, then your God is far too small. He is not the God of the Bible. That's right. And we live our lives. We live our Christian lives. Again, I'm not trying to pick on you guys. This is confession time. We live our Christian lives As though our Christian life is just about doing our best and trying to get through, trying to eke through another day, trying to make it through another week without just tragedy happening. But Paul prays that God would grant to us according to the riches of His glory which is inexhaustible to be strengthened with might. Not just in some self-help stuff. Not just in some good Christian resources. But through His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, the resources we have in God are unthinkable. They're inexpressible. They are untellable. They are unthinkable. But Paul's prayer continues on. Because there's another obvious focus. Now catch what Paul says here. It's a bit paradoxical. He says that he wants us to know a love that is unknowable. I love that. I I love Paul's use of language. Paul is a, he is a brilliant writer. I would say speaker, but he's writing here. In that doxology, he said that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I I think it's hyperbole, hyperbole, from which we get hyperbole. He He is able to do beyond imagining, and not only that, beyond imagining on top of that. And here he says that he wants us to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. He wants us to know something that is in the end finally completely unknowable. You can't control it. Now his use of the terms know here or knowledge here I think are are important for us to to understand. There is one sense in which we can know something and we can control it. That's the knowledge that we like to have when we're dealing with disease and sickness, when we're dealing with death and dying. We want a label. I remember reading a book in seminary, Dr. Nyhoff, uh, called How We Die. It was written by an agnostic Jewish doctor. He was head of surgery, uh, I believe, at Yale. Sherwin Newland, I think was his name. But he said, no one dies anymore from old age. There's got to be a technical explanation as to what happened. Like, you can't, you're, you're not allowed the dignity anymore of just Giving out when you get older. It, it, well, technically it was a collapsed lung caused by this, caused by that. Mom was 98 years old. <laughs> but the knowledge that we seek in the medical field, not we, I'm not I'm not in the medical field, but the knowledge that we like to 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 seek for within the fields of medicine is a knowledge that we want to be able to get our heads around so that we can have our hands around the situation. We want to know what we're dealing with because we think that if we can name it, we can control it somehow. If we we know the name of the disease we have, we can figure out something. There's that kind of knowledge that wants to control, that wants to exhaustively know. And then there's the kind of knowledge that the Hebrew people in the Old Testament knew of. Yadah was their name for it. And it was an experiential knowledge. It was the knowledge that was spoken of when Adam knew Eve and she gave birth to Seth. And that type of knowledge is not something that can control. It's not something that can get its hands around. It is not something that can exhaustively know. Lindsay and I celebrated our 12th anniversary just last month. And I know her quite well. But I don't know everything there is to know about her. Good grief, I'm still learning. Twelve years down the road, I will still be learning. I will still be falling far short of where I ought to be. Oh, man. Paul says he wants us to know the love of Christ, which can't be known. It passes all knowledge. It is an unknowable love. It is an uncontrollable, uncontainable love. We can't fully get our heads around it. We can experience it. We can put ourselves under its flow. But we cannot control it. We cannot contain it. He says, you being rooted and grounded in love, finding your foundation in the love of Christ, that you may be able to comprehend, there again, that that somehow you could understand something that can't finally be understandable. With all the saints, what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The love of Christ. Knowing the love of God. Is the foundation of our faith. And it is the fullness of our faith. You could say that love. Is the sum of all Christian living. That's why Jesus could say. The greatest of all the commands. Which is really the sum of all the law. And all of the prophets. Is to love God and to love your neighbor. It is this law of love that fulfills all laws. And it's a love that must be experienced personally. It is an intimate love. Paul wants us to know that we are loved. And He wants us to share that love with the world. If we're not blown away by the love of God, then we're thinking far too small-mindedly. We're thinking, oh, well yes, Jesus loves me course if we understand our Christian lives as being doing the best we can with the resources we have within ourselves we're thinking far too small-mindedly if we're thinking that God's concern in redemption is for us and our friends and our family. And that's about it. Then we're thinking far too small-mindedly. Because God has come in His Son, Jesus, to redeem the world. Not just our friends and family, but them also. He has come to redeem the world. And the resources that we have to live in the faith that we have in Jesus are unthinkable. Because His Spirit lives in us. And His Spirit Is the one who raises the dead. His spirit is the one who hovered over the waters in creation. And his love is unknowable, it passes all knowledge. But we can know it. Somehow, in the great mysteries of God, we can know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. Paul says that it's for this reason that he bows his knees, that he pleads for the Ephesians. That their eyes would be opened. That their minds would begin to think bigger than themselves and their circumstances. That our minds would begin to think bigger than ourselves and our circumstances. That we would be captivated by the love of God in Christ. That we would be mesmerized by the resources we have in the Spirit. And that we would be faithful in proclaiming the mystery that has been revealed. The mystery that has been unveiled to the world, that Christ came to redeem, that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly all beyond anything that we can ask or think. Paul mentions this idea of glory multiple times in the text. He talks about the resources or the riches of God's glory. And he ends with that doxology where he says, May all glory be to Christ in the church. In the Gospels, Jesus understood His glory in relationship to the cross. In fact, it was at the night of His betrayal that Jesus told His disciples it is now time for the Son of Man to be glorified. How is Christ glorified in the church? Not just by our beautiful singing on Sunday mornings. Oh yes, we want to give Him glory in our proclaiming of the hope that we have in Him through the beauty of music. But God is glorified to the world by the church. When the church lives in the love of Christ and lives in the resources that it has in the Spirit, when the church lives for the sake of the world, proclaiming the mystery, proclaiming the gospel to the world that Christ has come to redeem. When the church gives itself away as Jesus did, then Jesus is glorified in the church. And it is out of this great abundance of riches in glory that we are called to live. Understanding ourselves apart from this love and apart from these resources we have in the Spirit of God is far, far too small. understanding ourselves and our circumstances apart from what God is able to do and He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we could ask or think, understanding our circumstances apart from that is far, far too small-minded. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Do we really believe that? Do we really live like that is true? Is that how we approach our day when we wake up in the morning? Is that what we dream about when we lie down for bed in the evening? That God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. It sounds almost so cliché that we've forgotten its magnitude. That nothing is impossible with God. As limited as we are, as impossible as our circumstances are, nothing is impossible with God. His love can raise the dead. Let's pray.